Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Thursday, right after the day after Yom Kippur. And since Sukkot is coming up, I'm going to do a vart now, share an idea they had about Sukkot which is being sponsored by Gluck Plumbing, by our friend Abe Gluck in, in Lakewood. Hopefully, some people find it useful. Uh, every year, the last couple of years, I'm always drawn when it comes to Sukkot to some of the basic elements, ideationally, and like this, uh, Rokeach and so forth. So I'll cut right to the chase. We all know the big argument, Blazer, Bekiba, Sukkot, uh, you know, uh, Anani, Akobo, the Sukkot, Mamish. Uh, what's the difference between saying, and that the Shulchan Aruch says it was uh, Anani Yaakov, but, you know, that becomes the the go-to kind of uh, uh, shot. And I got nothing against that. But in the other end, Rabbi Kiva says, Sukkot Mamish. And what's that all about? Right? First of all, as we pointed out in the past, the Jews did not, as far as we know, live in Sukkot. They live in tents. The Sukkot and the tent are not identical. <clears throat> and second of all, why would you want to single out the uh, <coughs> Sukkot? So before I get into that, let me just say right off the bat <clears throat> that there is really a sublime difference between the two positions. It's not simply that one is mystical and one is physical. You know, the Ananiya covenant is a mystical thing. You understand, of course, I assume, that the Jews were not surrounded by, by meteorological clouds. They can call them Ananiya, but they're something else. You know, like obviously we've never seen them. Force field, ah, that's not the right word either. You know, some, just get your head out of the clouds. <laughs> And don't think in terms of like rain clouds. Ananiya covered is like a special zach. And especially if you tell me that there were all seven sides, you know, seven days, so over, under, around, through. Now, how do you have a cloud under your feet? A meteorological cloud, you know what I'm saying. So there was some kind of protective sort of zach. Again, anybody who, who tells you what it is, they're just guessing, I think. I mean, you know, they've never seen it. Now, um... There's more to the difference between the two opinions than just that one is a physical sukkah, the other is a naniya kavod. If you give it a little bit of thought, let's assume that. Um, well, I'll get right to it. The naniya kavod is a klal yisrael word. Sukkah's mamish is an individualistic word. Get it? There are two ways of describing the Jews in the desert, and even today, there's on the klal level and the prat level. Uh, if we say that there were Anani covered, it wasn't surrounding me and a separate one surrounding you and another one, the, the other Jewish guy down the street. It means the whole Machna Yisrael, all those two, three million people and so forth, were surrounded, broadly speaking, with these Ananim. So much so that we're told, as you know very well, that the reason Amalek was able to attack Necheshon and Macharech is because they somehow or other fell behind and were not in the protective power of these Ananim. So, I mean, why didn't they have their own, you know? The answer is, there was one that covered the whole Klal Yisrael, and if you were outside the Machina, literally, Chutz Machina, you were not protected by it. That is, if, if, if my memory serves correctly, 
the story of Amalek. Which, by the way, is very Tsugapas, because what does it mean? Amalek was, was able to affect and hurt the people who are not part of the Tzibor. <laughs> you get it? Here in this case, like physically. But the physical separation of the people from the Tzibor had metaphysical um, results. And therefore, you know, they, 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 they're not protected, and therefore Amalek could attack them. If you understand, by the way, Amalek, not simply as a physical nation, which they were, and, and a physical attack, which of course happened, but you understand it more broadly, ideationally, Amalek represents the Yitzhar and that kind of thing, temptation, whatever you want to call it. So you see that it was safety in being within the Tibor and danger being outside the Tibor, right? Uh, it's very interesting. In other words, Amalek was not able to penetrate and affect the Jews inside the Machna, surrounded as they were by the Anani Akava and the protective Anonim, but they were able to do to the ones outside of it. So you see the Musr in that, which is, you want to live, if you can, most people try, to live in a seaboard, And it is easier to raise children in a seaboard. It is possible, of course, to do so out in a belt. It's true. And, you know, the Chabad Shluchim, those type of guys do that. There's no question about it. But obviously it's going to be harder. It can be done, but it's a greater challenge. I told you. I wish I had a picture. When I was in Vienna a couple years ago, before the corona hit, there was this, uh, on the Babish, it was some from group, and the kids are running around in payas, right in the middle of the bar scene, you know, because the synagogue is right, the, the Stadt Temple in, in Vienna, if I remember correctly, is like right near a big bar scene. I don't mean bar scene in a negative way. I mean, I kind of do, but, you know, not what you think. People throwing up and stuff like that. Yuppies. You get it? Yuppies, you know, guy having having their own good time, not bothering anybody. Uh, you know, jeunesse doré. And they, uh, and they, what do you call it? And the, and it was funny because they, here you have these guys and girls walking around three quarters undressed, four quarters undressed. And they have these little kids in payas walking around. And, you know, like I see, as far as I can tell, it didn't affect them, you know? So uh, it's kind of weird. But generally speaking, that's the exception. Usually, Amalek can pounce on those who are outside the Machna. So, when Reb Lezer says that there are none of covered, he's talking about a sukkah. Now, I realize we have a physical sukkah. I get that with the three walls and the schach, but they represent the none of covered. So, what you're doing is making a cheap imitation, but the Torah says to do it, so we do it. A cheap imitation of what is a sublime shall we say, spirit, I hate the word spiritual, spiritual concept, which is you want to be surrounded along with the rest of Klal Yisrael within the Anonim. Being part of the Klal itself is one of the things that helps you against Amalek. That's sort of the idea of the Ketores, being the central um, ritual yesterday in Yom Kippur, that, you know, everybody's together, as long as they're all together in that, then the bad ones get the slich and kapar along with the good ones. That's the basic idea. By the way, it occurred to me yesterday, somebody must say, it sounds like a Hasidic word. I was just thinking yesterday in Davli, you know, they say that this family is cursed because they didn't share this secret, and that family, you know, the, 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 this one knew how to make the, the, the what was it, the Shtei Alechem and all that, and another family knew about the Ksivo, and so forth. And one of the families, I forget which one, knew about the Ketoris, 
and they wouldn't share it and died with them, and therefore they were cursed. That's a mission in Yuma. I'm sure most of you listening to this are familiar with this. And it's very famous. And what was the secret that they shared? Remember, they knew how to use the mala ocean or something like that. They knew how to do the spices in such a way that it went up straight like a pillar. So in other words, you have 11 different spices, but if you do it right, the whole thing goes up straight like a pillar. Do you see that's a physical, visual manifestation of a claw you throw? That's all a bunch of different things, but they all go up straight in a pillar. And imagine if you were in the Kodesh HaKadoshim on Yom Kippur, and you're davening on behalf of the claw, and you say, help us out, among other reasons, among other reasons, because we are a claw, and it goes up straight, you know, because the central ceremony is that the Kohen does the, you know, Keturus, does the burning of it with the coals and everything inside the Kodesh HaKadoshim, uh, right? That gufa was the argument, if I remember, between the Pushim and Tzadukim. So you see the importance of the claw, and that's the Anani covered. Uh, in other words, it's not the Anani per se, it's the fact that everybody experienced the 40 years in the desert as part of its Hebrew. See, even if Moshe Rabbeinu says, oh, it was a hard time, Nachash, Sarah, Viakrov, Etzimoina, Shalim, Amayim, Hamosich, Mayim, Yisrach, Halamish, all that stuff, you know, it's a Midbar, Hagadol, Hanor, Hazo, and like the Rambam says, they went through 40 uh, Masses in order to toughen them up, like a boot camp, and so on and so forth. I get it, but um, how's the expression go? If you share sorrow, it's, it's, it, it takes care of a lot of the takes away a lot of the difficulties. Sorrow mushutefes or something like that. You know, if if we go undergo all the same hardships, then one makes it, the other one makes it. It's not an individual. You know, you know, you're not an island, as as the poet says. You're part of a seaport. So that already is what you're evoking, as I understand it. When you talk about the Anani Kavit, that the whole Claw Yisrael was in, you know, one big group. And we can't do that today. You physically can't get all the Jews in the world together and, and sit in the sukkah. Although the Gemara seems to indicate that a sukkah has to have that possibility. That's one of those controversial or unusual Gemaras that I'm sure, again, I'm sure most people listening have heard one time or another, where it says in Sukkah and Chavzayin that uh, Rebbe Lezomer, Rabbi Yezer says, uh, I can't use somebody else's sukkah, I use my own sukkah. Uh, which is interesting because he's the one advocating for the remembrance of the original, you know, of the original one when we all together were in one sukkah. But the Chachamim say, It's true when I lulav, you need shalachem, you need your own lulav, you have to own it. And you know, therefore, halakhically, it's all a question of how you do that on. Why? Because call So it's true that that Rashi says it doesn't mean they all fit in one sukkah, but it kind of does, and some Rishonim say that way. Okay? You know, Rashi gives a technical explanation, which of course I understand. Because what does it mean literally? You know, when you deal with the literal level, which is what Rashi does, you know, you say call Yisrael. You know, like, 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 what does that mean? Sorry. And he has to say, you know, and, you know, it comes, and, and, and it comes out that way. But it also means, or it, it seems to indicate ideationally, at least, in terms of Ashkafa, 
the what's the expression? I'll bet you money that you know the Kliok or one of these two they must talk about it in that way. Sounds like his type of art. Or maybe on Sanatius, you know. Now, that's the collective experience. And so your Israel, according to Ananiya Kovid means remember the collective experience that uh, that the Jewish people went through um when they left Egypt and were in, were in the desert. The collective experience. Uh, they got the Torah collectively. They got the Mun collectively. They got all these Nis and Flows, you know, Be'er Miriam, and this and that and the other, Ananiya from Aaron, collectively. You see? Now, let's contrast that. Then Rabbi Kiva says that Sukkot Mamish. Now, Sukkot Mamish means that the part you're emphasizing is that every family was a separate unit. Because if you tell me Sukkah's mamish, they didn't all sit in one sukkah. Every family had its own sukkah, own tent of some sort or another. However you understand it, I realize it's not the word oh, how I get that. But nevertheless, Sukkah's mamish means people traveled in, in sukkos. And, you know, call it whatever you want to call it. In different houses, movable houses, movable huts, whatever you feel comfortable with. Which, by the way, must have been really interesting because they brought all the junk from Egypt with them, all the gold and silver, didn't they? That's kind of, you know, I'm sure I told you, I'm sure I said before, but I'll say again, there's a famous story of Queen Victoria. They say, I don't know, you know, they say when Rothschild in 1867, if I'm not mistaken, uh, dedicated at Wentworth, you know, I mean, he, he um, built the uh, mansion palace out in uh, English countryside. And, you know, they were loaded, loaded, I have to tell you. And the story is he invited Queen Victoria to attend uh, in some capacity. And it was in the papers. I saw once, I think there's a book, if I remember correctly, from Cowan, where they have uh, pictures from the 19th century, uh, English press, with Jewish themes in it. You know, in the 1800s, there was no photos in newspapers, but they had excellent drawers, you know what I mean? Sketches, sketch artists. And... I think if I remember correctly, the queen planted a uh, a tree and Rothschild put up a mezuzah. It's a, you know, in his way. They weren't so from, but public, they're a funny group. Publicly, they were from. You know, so in other words, they knew well enough not to ha- not to show that they're ashamed of their Jewishness because that only invites contempt. You see, they were, you know, the reform, the others didn't get that. Rothschild was smart enough to know whatever they keep personally or not, which is a sorry story, but you know, but for Hesia, they're proud of their Jewishness and they keep stuff. And so the story is that it was on Sukkot's time, right this time of the year. And of course, he had a royal visit. And even though he has a sumptuous uh, estate, and so he invited the queen to, um, to lunch, you know, or something like that in his Sukkah, <laughs> right? Now you can imagine. <laughs> you just imagine Rothschild Sukkot and when it said about everything gold and silver diamond you know you could just imagine there are some pictures of it actually in the uh, Anglo-Jewish press from long ago and uh, there's even a, a very nice thing called high tea I think it's called high tea at Rothschild Sukkot you can look that up online you might see it and um, with a long lulav it's kind of cute and you know the queen came in she saw all the gold and silver all the rest of it she said what's this because, you know, it was covered with schach. 
Now I can imagine Hitzchak was probably imported, you know, branches from who knows where. And he said, this is, the Old Testament tells us this is, we do every year, because this is how our forefathers traveled in the desert, your majesty. And she said, like this? <laughs> but the truth of the matter is, if it's true that the old went out with gold and silver and this and that and the other, and if it's true they had anything left over after they contributed for Eglos on the one hand and for the Mishkan on the other hand, then they had plenty of gold and silver left over. So outside it looks like a hut. Inside it looks like something else. <laughs> right? Imagine Kairach. Outside it looks like a hut. Inside it looks like Kairach. So it's just a funny kind of notion if you work through the details. But nevertheless, it's a separate experience. It's an individualistic experience. It's family by family. It's the praise of the individual family unit, which as we know, Bilam expressed when he said, Matovo Alecha Yaakov, according to the famous interpretation of Chazal, that every family had its own privacy and the others didn't shlub in someone else's privacy. That's a different model. You know what I'm These are different utopian descriptions. One is a utopia from uh, the Klal, and the other one, imagine, surrounded by Yanani, a covenant, and so forth. And the other one is the utopia of the family unit, which we all say is the basic structure of society. Societies rise and fall on the family unit. Even Klal Yisrael, as important as the collective is, and it's very important, but it's, it's important as, as a collection of families. You see? It's not as much a collection of Yechidim. I mean, that's true also, but it's a collection of Mishpachas. And even the Torah, and you, feed it, you see that a lot of times. It's, you know, uh, like really important. And nowadays, any social scientist will tell you that a country rises and falls on the basis of family structure, which is why we're also just thoughtful observers are disturbed by the collapse of the family unit under the pressure of Western culture in the late 20th and early 21st century, you know, without going into more details than that. So, Sukkot's Mamash, it seems to me, is, is that. The Dananiya Kovit is, is the collective experience. Sukkot's Mamash is a little bit different. So let's put it this way, just off the top of my head. You know, when Claudius stood around at Harsina and saw the, the, the pronouncing of the Ten Commandments, I'm sure collectively they had, you know, one kind of take. People stood there at the bottom of the mountain, if I know anything, and started hawking. You know how Jews are, like in Shoal. They said, oh, do you see the, the, the coal chauffeur? And where was Moshe? Oh, I saw Moshe. And what was the third commandment again, you know? Thou shalt kill, thou shalt not kill. You know, well, I, didn't, I didn't quite cop that, you know? That kind of business, right? And uh, that's the broad one. But then, shuvu lechem lechem. Isn't that right? God tells them specifically, go back to your individual units. There's a moment to get to hear the, the Ten Commandments com- pronounced. That's for everybody should gather. That is true. But then, go back to your individual units. See, see, the Bernishalm doesn't want the Jews to lose the individuality and sp- most specifically the um, family individuality, but rather to come together in a federal type way hopefully with a maximum federal unity, which is, of course, a trick in political science down till today to maintain an effective federal unity in which, as in the USA, the states have their, their rights, but on the other hand, they're tightly tied together in, in a union. Uh, as you know, a civil war was fought in this country over those kind of questions. Now, um, so you have quite a difference here in philosophy between Blazer and, and, uh, and Rabbi Kiva. Is the Anani a covenant on one hand, is it the other one? Imagine yourself, if you want to have some fun, 
at um at your sukkah this year uh just try to talk with your family what do you think you guys would have been like in experiencing the the 40 years in the desert uh is your family the type that would butch all the time and complain the food's not good now shano cuts you know are your kids picky eaters <laughs> you know the whole nine yards did you have a good seat for that series of dibras were you late like on ben Pellis? For the for the Korach rally, or do you say, "Oh no, our family, very from we were Moshe people." He said, "That's the lens out of which you look at a Sukkot mamish." Now, I would take a step further, and that is that uh, you know there's always this sheet of Rokeach that I always uh, bring up every year, which I hold is very very interesting, and uh, the Rokeach, of course, the Rokeach, uh, Middle Ages is bothered by the fact that, you know, where do you have Sukkot's Mamish? And, you know, where is that? And uh, he says, uh, I've done this before. It's a very interesting expression. This is a reshon up here. Very interesting expression. I'll say it again. Zehu, so in other words, and I, you know, if you don't remember this, you just go back to the old podcast. It's a pup tent, as we would call today. When the soldiers were in the Jewish army fighting in Sichon Og, and then in the time of, of as he puts it, Krachim Shabbat Yisrael, time of Joshua, so you know, uh, they were in, they were in sukkah. So no, they weren't home. They were military type situation. In which case, it wasn't a family; it was the males who were in the army. And this was part of the army experience. You know, thousands of years ago, you went by the Torah standard of hygiene, which is a standard because it says, you know, if you have anything to do, do it outside the camp, as we know, right? You make with the you know, all that stuff. But when you're in the camp, there's a separate kadosh. The camp was consisting of a whole bunch of different sukkahs, where the soldiers, when they're doing the sieges, you're surrounding a Canaanite city. How do you do that? You're in the open field. The people in the city have a house around them. You don't have a house. You're exposed to the elements. I don't have to tell you what Israel's like in the winter or any time. So they made sukkos, and that's what he says. Okay, they were besieging the Gaisha cities. But I, Joshua's time, is no longer Yitzhak's time. Moshe Rabbeinu's time, Sichanog is 40 years after they left Egypt. So the Rokeach said, Don't worry about that. That entire era was called Yitzhak's time. So it's a history lesson. The future generations, the idea of Sukkot, according to Israel Keach, he says it's the Yeshim Farshim, uh, is, They may not know the history of Israel, and they may think we Jews have lived there since Avram Yitzhak Yaakov. But no, the Torah doesn't want you to do it. The Torah wants you to know the truth. Yedish Yatsumi Mitzrayim, that's the Rokeach, who, you know, is a very important person. So I discussed this last time. How do you 
handle this from the Bible criticism point of view and so forth. But be that as it may, you see, just go with it for now. You see that he understands by to refer even to a post-Chumash period, and which is quite interesting. Now, um, what does that mean? The Jews were in uh, military-type situations, and uh, this is what it's commemorating. The idea of the pup tent, as I call it, of the individual sukkah for the soldiers or the squads, a group of soldiers, I mean, sounds like every one or two people had their own little sukkah. You know, it's a very primitive sort of thing. And the truth of the matter is it is exposed to the elements, but at least it's a little bit, you know, if somebody has to do this, the soldier and all the rest of it, it is a little bit of a protection against the elements. Uh, and I guess it also, let me put it this way, you also had to depend on Hashem because if it rains a lot, by definition, these pup tents ain't going to be no good. And I can tell you right now, if you know from military history, if there was a besieging army to hit by bad storms, if they didn't have first-class accommodations and sanitation, all the rest of it, the army would catch all kinds of colds and die. So, when they tsaru al-ari sikhan v'og and a krach Kanan, I mean, they really needed rachme shemayim. That's not a firm statement. That's just a statement of, of a little bit of knowledge of military uh, history, of military reality. Anybody who's listening to this who has a background in the military and was out on, uh, you know, in the field and maneuvers, that sort of thing, that's what I'm talking about. And, you know, it's not like a Boy Scout thing. If it rains too much, you call your mommy and daddy, go home. It's not, it's the army. So, um, it's very interesting because, you know, what does that sound? You're in an army, so you're part of a Kla Yisrael, and you are pursuing a Kla Yisrael a cause, which is the conquest of Eretz Yisrael, but you're doing it like individually. Every sukkah had separate soldiers in it. And so, they weren't all in one big sukkah. It's the opposite. So each person who lived near Yisrael, that the Torah is addressing itself to, according to the um, Rokeach, because he says, This is basically for future Doris. So every future Doris, think about what I'm about to say, who lived in the time of Shoftim and Bayez Rishon, I mean, if they kept up any family history whatsoever, they knew whether their ancestor or ancestors had been in the original armies of Moshe and Yeshua. And when they, according to this Rokeach, when they celebrated the holiday of Sukkot, it's a little bit like VE Day over here. You know, I mean, it's, it's like Veterans Day or something. You remember the, the privations of those who came before us. Uh, so it gives a different quality to it. It's not the emphasis on Nani Akavar, which is a very from kind of thing. You remember what Hashem did for us, which certainly is how the Puzzle sounds. This this Rokeach is a Chiddush, but uh, according to this Rokeach, you remember your ancestors who fought the army, who fought in the army and had a hard time. Nobody says it was easy. And it's kind of an individual, when war is an individualistic experience. It's true that the armies go together, but it ain't like the Ananiya covered, you're all surrounded and protective thing by a claw type war. You're going out. When you have the, the fighting that I'm talking about, there was no Ananiya covered. Um, understand this well. When Moshe says um, in the Pesukim that they quoted before about the uh, one sukkah for all the Jews, it's in Parshish Re'eh. Chag HaSukos Tasele Choshiva. It's Mafter. Chag HaSukos Tasele Choshiva. So Mafter B'Chagecho and so forth and so on, right? So, Atav Ben Chavitech Abducho Meso HaGero Yosan HaShem B'Shirecho And for some reason, the Rokeach blends this 
with the Pasig and Vayikra. So, in the Pasig and Re'eh, I mean, the, the, it's just before the death of Moshe. Aaron was already dead. He died in Bamidbar, right? So the Ananim were not there anymore. So Moshe is not, according to this Rokeh, Moshe is not saying, remember what we used to have before my brother died. According to this Rokeh, they're saying, no, you know, we're going to be fighting in Eretz Israel. We're fighting now, actually. We just finished round one. and you know, uh, But I, Moshe, I'm not going to make it in Eretz Israel. So Yeshua is going to lead you in. And when Yeshua, it's going to be a lot of fighting. Okay? And, uh, but don't think that this fighting will go unrecognized. Don't think that your service will be unrecorded. It's like a chizik to the soldiers, you understand? The privations that you will undergo, which will be there, uh, will will earn you eternal fame. And I and I don't mean that in a bad way, right? Eternal fame, you know, a, 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 justly so, right? Justly so. And so, um, it's a different story. Now, I think I mentioned this last year. When does next time you see a sukkah? By Ezra Nehemiah, right? You all know that famous controversial Pusik where it says that uh, in time of Nehemiah, in the book of Nehemiah, I think it's chapter 8 or 9. Yep, chapter 9. I just opened it at random. I got it right away. It's like one of those Dora LaGro things. Oops. <laughs> My mistake. It's in chapter 8. I just, I just finished it. And it says... Uh, second day Rosh Hashanah, they had a big meeting. in front of Beis Hamikdash, and they found and they said everybody should go build a sukkah, and they all went and got Ali Zayis, Ali Shemin, Ali Hadassim, Ali Tamar, Ali Tzavos, and they built the sukkahs perhaps out of those. They built sukkahs everywhere. And it says that famous controversial pasuk, Vayasu in Perkes, Vayasu call a kahol hashav minashmi sukos, Vayishu ba sukos, Kilo osmi me yoshu benun kain adayamahu, Vatiya simcha gedomaod. They made these sukos. Now, uh, what does it mean that they never did this this way since the time of Yehoshua? Like you know, what exactly does that mean? And um, let me say that. Uh, the sukkah here is Molly, by the way, has the vav in it, and you can spin that in, in, in a lot of different ways. Those of you looking for dvar Torahs will try to make something out of whether it has a vav or not, because you know in the Chumash it has three, two without a vav and one with a vav. Uh, but uh, what does it sound like? Then they didn't do this in the time of Yeshua. Well, if it's in commemoration of uh, the fights the soldiers had to acquire Eretz Yisrael. Well, guess what? In time of Ezra Nehemiah is also first generation of the time of Eretz Yisrael. Now, they didn't fight. In the time of Ezra Nehemiah, they got permission. Okay? They got permission from the king of Persia. No, it's not 100% true. The book of Nehemiah narrates the fact that the Jews themselves had to fight or be ready to fight against the Samaritans, the Arabs, all those other junk, led by Sanballat and these other characters to try to physically interfere and kill the Jews while they were building the walls of Jerusalem. So in other words, and remember, Ezra and Nehemiah says, I posted soldiers everywhere. I was ready to fight myself. We never took our uniforms off. We had to sleep 24-7 like in Israel on the frontier. You know, it was a pretty much a military time. And therefore, when it says they hadn't built circuits like this since the time of, of uh, what do you call it? 
of uh, Yeshua, it could mean, I would suggest, it could mean they didn't build one with the idea of Sukkot's Mamish. When the Jews were in Eretz Yisrael, you know, they already talk about Anani Yaakov, they could be real from, because they already had their own country, and everything was going great, especially in the first half of the, you know, post Yoshua period. But by the time you get to Bayashani, things were much more touch, touch and go. And you might even say that the entire period of Bayashani, things were touch and go. And uh, they always had to be on guard against their local neighbors. That's what the history of that time was. Even though overall they're part of the Persian Empire and part of the Greek Empire and part of the Roman Empire, take it from me, or Regiosephus, they had a lot of junk from the neighbors. And you couldn't be safely Jewish without having your own militia during the Bayashani period, even when they were ruled by others. That's one of the reasons that they had trouble under the Romans. I mean, if you read Josephus, there were times when certain Gaisha groups acted against the Jews, and if the Jews took revenge on them, I remember in the time of Claudius, the emperor, then the Romans might get angry. It's a complicated story. So when it says that they hadn't built Sukkot in the way we just described it, uh, it could mean they hadn't built this way since the time of Yeshua when they experienced Sukkot's Mamish in the military sense. And now, if they're building Sukkos after they completed the walls of Jerusalem, in the book of Nehemiah, look it up, that doesn't mean that they were uh, feeling safe from enemy attack. Nehemiah does organize a, a civil guard. Nehemiah does organize a census to compel Jews to live in the city so they should have a large enough population to be able to supply the Mishmar, you know, uh, Ezrahi. And... Uh, you see, therefore, that sukkah has a um, more of an individualistic kind of thing. It's individual in, in the military sense that you're participating in a national defense effort, but it's not the kind of super coming together represented by the Ketores, represented by the Anani Akovan, in which I blend into you and you blend into me. That's a very high madriga. Today, uh, you know, the Shulchan Aruch and others take the uh, Rebelezer point of view there's the Ananiya Kovit. They don't deny the other one, of course, but they uh, you know, emphasize the Ananiya Kovit part. That's a frumer type way. You get it? And that's a different ideal in which we hope, you know, to, like I said before, really come together united. But to be perfectly honest, the last couple hundred years in Jewish history has not gone in that direction. My friends, it's gone the opposite direction. The last couple hundred years in Jewish history has seen the fractionation. And overall, if I can use the terminology, we've gone from from Ananiya Kovit, historically speaking, to Sukkot Mamish. Uh, instead of all the Jews feeling part of one claw, we now have Reform, Conservative, Orthodox, this group, that group, and the other group, and even within the from they're all cutting each other's throats all the time. So uh, we are much more, it seems to me, in the parts of Sukkot's Mamish. Uh, I think if you develop that idea that I just laid out in front of you, it's 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 actually a very thought-provoking uh, question to discuss in the Sukkot, which is, you know, what part of current Jewish life today, sociologically, is Anani Akovit style, and what part of current Jewish life today, sociologically, is individualistic, separate, is Sukkot's Mamish. Each, because remember, each Sukkot looks different, you know. Don't think that the Sukkot were bought at Sukkot Depot, and therefore they bought standard type of Sukkot like you have in America. That's the modern business of, you know, standard production. Uh, every Sukkot was different, okay? Uh, when you're in an Anani Akovit, the Anani Kovit were not different. They're all identical for everybody. Right? We all have the same clouds around us. They're identical. Uh, the Sukkot, on the other hand, is the uh, individualistic. Mine is decorated my way. Yours is decorated your way. Mine has this shape. 
yours has that shape. Maybe it has four walls, but you know, there's a lot of things you can do within that. Just think of the different types of architecture that are out there. Anyway, it's just an idea I had. I think it goes really to the heart of a of a sukkah and its contemporary um, application or, or relevance. And with that, I got to go get my lula fixed. So I will bid you a good day. But once again, I want to thank Mishpachas Gluck uh, for sponsoring this. And uh, I hope to have another idea to share between now and, and Sukkot. But as the uh, time goes now, I think you should give some thought to this uh, concept of the bifurcation between the Anani Kovin on one hand and the Sukkot Mamash on the other. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.